Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Heart of Sports with Jason Springer and Jeff Cohen, powered by ELEC 825. We are thrilled to join you on WWDB 860 AM and the 97.5 Network, ready to help you move into the weekend, talking about all the news in the world of sports. Jeff, what a week. We are done with football. Super Bowl has passed. Plenty to talk about that later. Yeah, before I, before we have Keith come on, can I just ask you quickly, was ELEC A25 able to fix your uh, your system so that you'll be on for the whole show this week? So if you want the truth, uh, it appears <laughs> that uh, I unplugged a power cord and took the whole system down. Are you, you kidding me? No, I'm not. I'm owning it. And you didn't even te- you didn't even <laughs> tell me that off air. To share that on the air for you that yes, it appears so my laptop wasn't taking a charge, and I guess the cord wasn't fully plugged. All right, well, in. I'll be breaking co- protocol to come over there and uh, and break some things in let's, your house. Let's go right to basketball. We'll bring on Keith Pompey. Keith, that is all about the fact that last week, mid interview with a NFL Hall of Famer, I managed to turn off my whole equipment and disappear from the show for a little bit. So it got better with it. Just Jeff doing it. So how you doing, man? Hey, I'm doing well, man. Uh, I feel sorry for you. <laughs> I, let me tell you something. I had like a nervous breakdown, panic attack when everything went off. I'm like texting the station and calling over. I called into the phone line as a guest so I could do the rest of the show. Jeff did the interview with Connor Johnson because he was afraid that I was going to step all over him. Yeah, it was good stuff. Great radio, man. <laughs> <laughs> So, so Keith, I'll be unplugging him. Just get, just send me a text if you get uncomfortable with any question that Jason asks, and I'll just unplug him. I'll unplug my cord. I'll go right away. Yeah. So, so where are you right now? I'm in Phoenix now. Oh, you're in Phoenix after Portland last night. Okay. No yeah. snow out there, I bet, huh? Uh, nah, it was crazy. My flight was uh, like they only had one. Well, they had two flights, but um, but mine was what six o'clock this morning. So I've been here for a good bit. Yeah, we're we're all gonna feel real sorry for you that you're getting a in Phoenix <laughs> while I was out shoveling snow yesterday. Let me tell you, man. I'm, so uh, can you, so can you tell us what happened last night? <laughs> what happened the at game? the end of that game? Yeah, I know they looked like the Sixers from uh, <laughs> old, didn't they? I mean, it's like I mean Tobias commits the foul and then Ben turns the ball over, you know, and they both led to. Uh, foul shots by um, Carmelo Anthony and uh, Dame Lillard. But, yeah, they just – it seemed like – I mean, if you think about this, think about how if you can have Dame Lillard in the, in, in the last three quarters uh, shoot a combined two for 14 and you still lose the game. I mean, that, that, that has to hurt. And the thing about it is you know that in an NBA season, teams are going to slip up and, and, and lose games. And this was just happened to be one of them. But Carmelo Anthony looked like Carmelo Anthony from six years ago in that fourth yeah. quarter. I mean, he was lighting them up. And, and But, you know, when you look at it, you look at the game film, you see some of the mistakes that you made. You see how you came out flat early on in that game. Um, and, and, you know, they, they did come back. But at the same time, you know, sometimes you just have a – a, a bad game on the road and a game, well, I shouldn't say a bad game, but a game that you can still on the road. You have so many opportunities and that was one of them and they just couldn't get it done. You know, you, you talk about the struggles of Lillard and everybody was shooting. That wasn't the case in the first quarter. They were shooting the lights out from anywhere on the court when they were putting it up. Then you get to the fourth quarter. That may have been Carmelo Anthony's best quarter of the season that he played against the Sixers. Uh, they are still 18 and eight in first place 
What's your feel of this team right now? I, I, it's a question I ask everybody because I'm not sure even with an 18 and eight record in first place that people feel like this is always a first place team. Where are you on this right now? I'm with you. I mean, you know, the, the, the thing about this Sixers squad is this road trip is, is really going to tell us a lot. Like when they get back, you know, if they can, you know, win the next two games and you can say, okay, well, maybe this team is quite there. I mean, the problem with the 76ers is that, I mean, when you look at it, I mean, they've only defeated, I believe, three or four teams with a winning record as of today, right? And you look at and, and their strength of schedule, um, you know, as of yesterday, it was the second easiest schedule in the league. And you look at the teams that are right behind them, you know, their schedules are much tougher. Now, Milwaukee isn't, isn't that isn't tough, but the rest of them, they're playing tougher schedules. And you know it's all going to balance out at one point. And the Sixers are, you know, they're taking advantage of their record. But right now, I honestly think that they're going to fall back to the pack unless, you know, they make some trades, unless they do some other things. Because I just look at it like, you know, right now, when when you say that the Sixers are 13-1 and or 14-1 and with their starters, well, that's not telling me a lot. Because the thing is, like, you look at it, what happens when these guys, one of the guys don't play, and then they lose? So That's not a pretty you know, game when one of these guys don't play, Keith. We've seen that. Yeah, exactly, and, and that's the problem. So, you know, I have to say that, you know, I'm looking at it. I'm not saying it's fool's gold. I'm saying they're beating the teams that they're supposed to beat. But at the same time, you know, it's going to get tougher for them. And while these other teams are going to play some of these easy teams that they're playing, and it's all going to balance out. And I think the Sixers are going to, you know, slide down the standings. Well, Keith, now we have, you know, a couple dozen games almost under the belt. You've now seen the two guys that they brought in. Are they as good as they should be? And are they the answer? You know, here's the thing. Like, it depends on what you want. Like, Seth Curry, you know, Seth Curry is a first-time starter. You know, when you when you have a guy like Seth Curry, he's not you're not saying, okay, end of the game, I'm drawing up plays for Seth Curry. But, you know, and before he was hurt, he did provide, or before he had COVID, he did provide a lot of spacing for the Sixers. I mean, he was shooting 50-something percent from three. That's, that's, that's amazing, right? Better than his brother. Better than his brother, I know, right? But then you look at Danny Green and you say to yourself, you know, there are some people saying, hey, uh, why is he starting? You know, he's inconsistent. He's this, he's that. Well, it just seems like he's a better fit in the starting lineup than um, Shake Milton, who would be the guy, or or, or um, Maxi, or or um, Matisse Seibel, you know, um, Tyrese Maxi and Matisse Seibel. So, again, they're not meant to be, um, you know, guys who are going to come in and, and be like Jimmy Butler so to speak, or a J.J. Reddick, so to speak, when he was in the prime. But what they, but with Seth is he's a, a guy who can create space. And let's look at Danny Green, like big picture. You know, Danny Green, they got Danny Green, who's on the expiring contract, and they got rid of Al Horford's contract. So, you know, I expect him to be a guy who's here for a year. They, they probably won't, most likely won't bring him back, and then they'll have that cap space money, you know. Yeah, but we have this year, and we have a team that that's at the top of the standings. <laughs> so, so you know, for some people, they don't want to say, "Yeah, that's great for next year." It is. It's great that they're able to to look in the future, 
but what do you do about this year? And so then the question becomes is, do you have a good enough bench? And are there guys that are actually trade chips? And what I'm thinking about, if you're reading my mind, is Matisse Thibel, because he seems to be a guy who is still creating defense, but he'll be out there. And it's frustrating to me. He'll be out there for 20 minutes a game and not take a single shot. Yeah, I mean, here's my thing. It depends on who you're trying to get for Matisse Seibel. I mean, it honestly does because when you look at Matisse Seibel, I mean, it's great that you talk, you brought him up, right? So, you know, Ben Simmons right now is leading the NBA in deflections. You know, Matisse Seibel is, is, is leading the NBA in deflections per 36 minutes. You know what I mean? Like, he doesn't play a lot, but he's effective. So my thing is, like, yeah, if you want to bring him, if you want to, like, play him, and I mean, if you want to trade them, then you just have to make sure who you're going to get. Because I think the problem with the thing with Matisse is Matisse needs a summer where he can just get in the gym and then just hit a lot of threes. Just, just do but make it like, you know what I mean? Just like go out there from hours. Just go out there and just chuck them, chuck them, chuck them, hit them. And, and this year is hard. Like some people will say, well, we got to give up on them right now. But it's hard to me to say that when you're coming off of a pandemic where guys weren't able to get in the gym and do the things that they were, you know, that they typically are. I mean, I really like Matisse. And in order for you to get rid of Matisse, I mean, you know, if you have to package him in a deal, it better be in a in a deal to bring in somebody that's really going to elevate you to a championship. Because, you know, I'm here to tell you, like, when they played Sacramento, um, the Aaron Fox was, like, giving Ben Simmons the business, so to speak. And Matisse Seibel is the one who shut him down. So you got to be careful because I don't see anybody else on that roster who can make stops consistent, consistently outside of Ben Simmons. So we talk about the roster. Joel has obviously been dominant. Uh, you know, he's, I mean, it's kind of expected he's going to put up 30 points and, and really make his mark on the game. Ben has been more aggressive since the Harden trade right after you know, it's still, you'll see what you get. Tobias is the team's second leading scorer. He's putting up career highs and field goal percentage and three-point shots. This is what we talked about a lot before the Harden trade of if you get a James Harden, there's no question of who takes the last shot. Who takes the last shot on the Sixers right now? It was Tobi- Tobias Harris recently, but the play was designed for Steph, for Steph Curry. Who takes the last shot? Wow, the last shot in the game would have to be it's Tobias it has to be Tobias it has to be um just because you know Joel Embiid everything has to go right I keep saying that over and over again whereas you can give Tobias the ball like high on a pick and roll him coming off a curve or something like that um coming off the screen so I, I think that it has to be for Tobias but you know ideally like you said it had. I mean, they may have to go out there and and get an elite perimeter player um, to do that because even with Tobias, the, the pass has to be right, which it wasn't last night at the end of the game. You know what I mean? So even for Tobias, it's like you, you, it, everything has to go right in order for him to get the ball as well, too. Well, Keith, what, Jason wants to talk about who on the Sixers gets the ball at the end of the game. We're about to face the Sixers are about to face Phoenix. Last night, Devin Booker said that he was very comfortable with Giannis taking the last shot in the game. What is going on there? 
Well, he was, uh, uh, you know, he said he was very comfortable with Giannis taking it. Oh, you didn't even say, yeah. Okay. So, so enlighten me. You're going to have to get Keith up on the news. Enlighten him, Jeff. Yeah. You know, Giannis missed a a game-winning shot at the the end of that game uh, against Phoenix. (laughs) They asked Devin after the game, what do you thought about uh, Giannis having the last shot? And he said he was very comfortable with it. So, and I don't know what's going do. on there, but you got to get to the bottom of what's going on with Devin Booker. And apparently there will not be a trade of Booker to Milwaukee. <laughs> I mean, wouldn't you, I mean, like, Hey, like, see, that's the thing. I like that because he's, he's telling it like it is like Giannis is known for, you know, he has like him and Ben Simmons are, are similar. Like they're not really good shooters. You know, now Giannis will attempt the shot, but it doesn't mean he'll make the shot. And so I, <laughs> I think it's a great quote now that I hear it. You know what I mean? I mean, hey, he took it. He lost. You know, I mean, think about it. Giannis had a chance to win the game at the foul line earlier this year against the Boston Celtics, and he missed both of them. All right. So you know? tomorrow we, we, we all get to see Devin Booker in action. What can we expect of the Sixers playing Phoenix? Well, I think we're going to expect the thing that we normally see when we see a lot of elite guards. People forget Devin Booker normally torches the Sixers. And now that he has, before it was just Devin Booker and a bunch of dudes, right? So so now he has Chris Paul as his backcourt mate, um, who's a heavy point guard and is going to get him the ball in the right spots. I mean, I think it's going to be a tough game for the Sixers, I do. And I think Devin Booker's going to score a lot of points. I mean, think about it. Um, Dame Lillard had 30, and he had a bad game after the first quarter, right? De'Aaron Fox had 35, I believe it was, and and he, like, struggled in the fourth quarter. You know, uh, Bradley Bill had 60. Terry Rozier had 35. Um, uh, you know, uh, Brooklyn, Joe Harris, who who's not known for scoring a bunch of points, had 29 points against the Sixers. I mean, Devin Booker is due to have a big game. I mean, I expect him to have at least in the 30s. Seems like anybody who plays the Sixers is due to have a big game. Uh, I got a question for you about the All-Star game. Are they really going to play this game? You got LeBron and Giannis saying that they're frustrated, other players complaining. I keep asking Jeff if it's the best idea to put everybody in a city where everybody goes and gets wings every time I hear about it. Lemon pepper wine. <laughs> are, are, are they really going to go far with this all-star game? And is that really a good idea? <laughs> I mean, yeah, it seems like they are. Um, I, I don't think so. You know, let, 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 let's, let's keep it real. What it is is they're trying to get a moneymaker. It's going to be a moneymaker for, like, they're going to – people are going to tune in. Now, I think where LeBron and them messed up at, like, LeBron didn't say, oh, I'm not going to be there. He said, well, if I'm there, he says, I'm going to be there physically, but my heart will not be there, something like that. I'm paraphrasing, right? So the fact of the matter is that the fact that he's going is is, kind of bad. Now, if LeBron will say, you know what, I'm not coming. I'm not going to participate in it. And then I think another guy would probably follow suit. But once he says he's going, then I I think they're still going to have that all-star game. You know? We have we have three potential all stars. Have any of them expressed whether or not they would go, or whether they're dismayed by this whole idea? 
Joe Joel said he probably he said Joel said I probably won't go. Like he says, I don't Good. know if I'm gonna do it. Yeah, he says that because <laughs> I mean you got to realize about I mean he didn't make it seem he didn't come out with a definite. He was like I'm not sure. Like I'm not sure if I'll go. Like one of those, which means like there's some doubt. And and the thing about Joel is, you know, Joel's a guy who, you know, he has a newborn, um, you know, his his uh, his girlfriend. You know, it's one of those things where, you know, he just, you know, he wants to be safe and he wants to be around them. I mean, you know, he he doesn't even like sit on the bench anymore. He sits over behind a um, behind a basket. Well, so and he already had that he, scare this year with with Seth getting it. So I mean, it's not like it hasn't come close to him at this point. Exactly. So you know, I mean, he doesn't want to do it. And plus, not only that, let, let's face it, like. You know, these guys, when they go on the road, they they want them to quarantine in the hotel. I mean, it's not going to be like a normal All-Star. Like, you go down to the All-Star game, like, yeah, everyone watches the 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 game. The game is the grand finale, but it's more or less mingling, partying, you know, doing whatever you can, making contact. It's like the All-Star game is an event. An All-Star weekend is an event that's capped off by, with the game. Now it's like all you're going to do is go down there and play a game and sit in the hotel for two days. You know, so I, I, I don't think Joel wants to do that. And and if I'm the NBA, I do everything in my power to make sure Lou Williams does not make that game. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, you know what? If, if, no, if I'm the NBA, I want Lou Williams to make that game because at least you'll have the, uh, the club that he went to, probably a sponsor. And we'll have commercials on lemon pepper Lou <laughs> All about the ad revenue, Keith. What well, look, if you're not, and I'd be shocked if you're not, if you're a Sixers fan or an NBA fan, make sure that you catch Keith's articles on uh, the Philadelphia Inquirer on philadelphiainquirer.com. And also do not miss his Pompeii on Sixers podcast. Keith, thanks for joining us. And uh, try not to enjoy the 80 degree weather too much. Yeah, man. Hey, with this COVID, I just stay in my room. I look out the window and wave at people. Hey, how you doing down there? <laughs> it looks pretty. That's all that matters. It, it'll look much exactly. better than when you go to Utah. <laughs> yeah, like, a little slightly different. All right. <laughs> Take care, Keith. All right, bye. Jeff, it's, I know the road's tough for reporters, but it's hard to feel sympathy when they're in Phoenix and out west. And yeah, if, if I was if I was in Phoenix for a day or two, I'd you know I'd at least go out to I don't know go out to the desert, do something out there instead of just hanging out in in my hotel room, right? Be honest, he doesn't strike me as the guy that just hangs out in the desert. That's just he can, not what I come think. Come on, he, he's, he's you can text him after the show and ask him if that's. His idea of entertainment. That's Jeff Cohen's idea. Of you, you don't see him as the great outdoorsman? I, I didn't say I don't see him as a great outdoorsman. I said I don't see him going to the desert. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know that he likes to hang with the scorpions and, and the you know, all the other critters that are out in the desert? Maybe. We've probably got a few minutes until uh, till Buster only hops on. Um, we're going to try and talk. Well, what do you th- well, hold on. What do you think is going to happen with these next two games? So they have, they have a game with Phoenix that that looks winnable, you know, when you first think about it, especially if you're programmed to the way they played last year. But as Keith said, this team's a lot better. It's no longer Devin Booker and the dudes. So I think he should coin that phrase quickly. But then they're going to Utah. And Utah is not an easy game to play. And look, I, I got questions. Not an easy about... game to play. Don't they have the best record in the NBA now? 
just seems like before every game, there's a question about Ben's calf or Joel's back. And, and I figure that one of them will sit one of the games. Uh, so I, I don't know. I mean, like, that's why I asked him, you know, th- this team is in first place with their record, but to me, they're not the best team in the East right now. That would be like Milwaukee or potentially the Nets at what they would be in the playoffs, not what they are right now. You but know, I, mean, I, I don't, you know, we've talked about Milwaukee before. Their bench is not very strong. The Sixers have a stronger bench and the Sixers have a stronger starting five. Yeah, let's see how that works out in a short series. I just, I don't. Well, well, if Giannis, see, I didn't realize this whole thing with Giannis is like an ongoing thing that he, that he's not exactly super, Mr. Super Clutch. But, you know, if he's missing, for, I didn't know he was missing free throws at the end of the game to go along with, you know, Devin. I mean, for Devin Booker to make that comment, even if he tries to say it's tongue in cheek and I haven't heard it yet, I don't know if you saw it when he said it. He just said it as straight faced as can be. Keith loves the trash talk like that. He wishes more <laughs> athletes would be straight. Well, well, wait, he is Mr. Trash Talk. I know who follows him on social media. He has mastered the Michael Jordan crying meme on anybody's shoulders. And he regularly puts out memes as a Giants fan that he is <laughs> yes, against the Cowboys and against the Eagles. It's kind of entertaining to, to watch that all for sure. Yeah. He's a, he's an equal opportunity meme. Smack he over. is an equal opportunity team hater. Why don't we go from, you know, the, the fun of the Sixers and everything that's going on. Um, we wanted to make sure that when we heard the news this week that, uh, that Pedro Gomez had passed away. Uh, he was somebody, Jeff, that we had the opportunity to, to come across paths many times through the years doing some of the shows that we had. And so we wanted to have somebody on talk to him. <laughs> Lucky enough, we can't get much better than senior writer for ESPN, among his many other assignments, host a Baseball Tonight podcast, Buster Olney. Buster, thanks so much for giving a few minutes here to, to talk about everything. How are you holding up? Um, it's been a really rough week. There's no question about it. And, you know, every day, uh, you know, getting text messages from people in the game uh, who knew Pedro, you know, a lot of writers, but also, you know, players and, and staffers. You know, the other day getting a you know, an email from A.J. Hinch, the, the manager of the Tigers, who knew Pedro when, when uh, A.J. first broke into the big leagues with Oakland. Um, and I was, you know, texting with, um, with one of Pedro's children today, his daughter Sierra, about how, um, you know, I, I, I miss Pedro. And you can't even imagine that you're never going to have another chance to talk with him. Yeah, but, you know, Buster, the way that we met him was he, we were covering minor league baseball. And and he was there covering minor league baseball. He was doing a story, I believe, on Tim Tebow at the time was one of the stories he was doing. And the first thing that I noticed about him was not that he just loved baseball and and was a major league baseball reporter who was covering minor league baseball and was doing it with like such a passion, but also the passion he had for family and friends and how easy he was to just talk to the second you got to know him. What was it like to work with Pedro? Yeah, and our, our careers intersected a couple times uh, in an unusual way. You know, my, my first big break really was getting – I was working at the Nashville Banner right out of college, and I was hired to cover uh, high school sports for the San Diego Union and uh, in the South Bay. And that job opened up when Pedro um, got the job covering the Oakland Athletics for the San Jose Mercury News. So I, I – 
you know, uh, replace Pedro. And I was always jealous of him because it was, you know, I was like this. I felt like a substitute teacher walking into a job of a popular teacher because all the other staffers, you know, were like, wow, Pedro was, you know, awesome. And Pedro did this and Pedro did that. Uh, And then the day that I went to interview with ESPN, who's in the in the newsroom that day but Pedro, who had just been hired uh, to be a field reporter. And, and, you know, he just connected with so many players and, and so many people. And I really feel like that, you know, and amid my sadness, I, I'm really sad for the you know next couple of generations of young Spanish-speaking players who will ne- never benefit from having Pedro. You know, part of my jealousy of Pedro through the years was his, that incredible ability to speak in Spanish and English so easily to the degree that he would do interviews on air. He'd ask a question in Spanish of a young player who wasn't confident with his English and then immediately translated on there. Uh, on air that that is a special skill um you know and part of the reason why i was able to use it was because he connected so easily with people you know we can talk about his professional talent uh jeff and i were always moved by the person he seemed to be whenever we got to speak with him or or see him uh and from the outpouring after the news broke whether it's friends or colleagues or athletes or I've enjoyed the ordinary people who he came across, who he got them a signed card or got them something else or kept in touch with them. Can you talk about Pedro the person? Because that seems like a much larger man than Pedro the professional. Yeah, and I think it, uh, you know, Tim Kirchner said something the other day about him, that there was never a story that was, uh, you know, too big or too small for him. And there was never a person who was too big or too small for him. Pedro didn't think of himself as being a big deal. You know, he was always the same person, always positive. You'd never see him lose his temper. Um, he treated everybody the same so that, uh, for example, when we were at the winter meetings and we had, you know, cameramen and staffers uh, in the back room in between uh, segments that we were doing, and he had a running gag with everybody. Um, and that's what really jumped out at me. I mean, I had my own relationship that went on for 30 years with Pedro. I had my own running thing with him. You know, I'd always joke to people that, thank God, Pedro got fired in San Diego, which wasn't really true, um, that enabled me to move there. And we would have a laugh about that. But, you know, he had that with everybody. Um, and it was neat to see so many people come out this week and talk about, you know, Pedro and how he touched so many lives. Um, and it was it was surprising when you'd, you'd see different things from different people because you didn't know Pedro had, had a relationship with that person. But then it wasn't because Pedro was so open and so warm. You know, you mentioned Tim Kirchin talking about it. I heard the uh, podcast you did with Charlie Moynihan, the producer who worked with him, and Tim Kirchin. And I, the word that they kept using was fearless, whether it was the Barry Bonds beat that he went on yeah. or – choosing the losing clubhouse after a big game or standing up for younger reporters who were kind of being picked on when he didn't think that was appropriate. Can you talk more about that side of him? Yeah. And that, and the Barry Bonds coverage was very interesting. Uh, I think it was in the spring of 2005. 
I remember being in a meeting, and Vince Doria was an editor at ESPN at the time, basically described what the assignment was for Pedro, which had never been done before, which, you know, with Barry Bonds uh, in the midst of Balco and the steroid investigation, Pedro was going to be assigned every day to do reports on Barry Bonds. And I remember hearing it first going, oh, boy, because I knew that he would become a lightning rod. And right away, absolutely, there was criticism of that coverage. Well, as that uh, you know that year evolved, Pedro became the guy who would always ask the the appropriate tough question of Barry Bonds, and he would be the guy who would you know get yelled at by other players who were upset about that. Um, but he absolutely did that without hesitation, um, you know. And the, the, that story you referenced was actually something that was tweeted out by Howard Bryant, a longtime reporter, and he told a story about how. Um, one day there was a, you know, a headline that Tony LaRusso, the Hall of Fame manager of Oakland, uh, didn't like about Dennis Eckersley, and he's like, who the F is Howard Bryan, who's 24 years old at the time? And Pedro basically stood up and said, hey, Tony, knock it off. Give the guy a break. You know that the writers don't do the headlines. Uh, and the interesting thing about that is is that just coincidentally, I was talking with Steve Kepman, who's a great friend of Pedro uh, a couple nights ago, and he said that one of the people reached out to him who was really upset after hearing the news about Pedro was Tony La Russa. Uh, but, I mean, that that tells you everything about uh, about Pedro. I, have, I don't pretend to know Barry Bonds well. I haven't talked to Barry Bonds. But my sense was is that even at the end of that saturation cover to Barry, that there was a respect that Barry had for Pedro because Pedro showed up every day. He never changed demeanor, and he's very direct in, with, his, uh, with his questions. So as somebody who's had the, the, the pleasure to work with Pedro as long as you did, what did, what did you learn from him? Well, um, I, it was, and I knew this because I got a D-plus in Spanish at Vanderbilt. <laughs> I, I always was so envious of his ability to use those two languages. And through that, um, you know, because I would go up to Pedro or, my, you know, my colleague now, Marley Rivera, and I would ask them for the perspective of, uh, you know, the young player from Dominican Republic, the young player from Venezuela, who I couldn't speak with uh, deeply. And, and through the years, uh, you know, my conversations with Pedro always reinforced that. Like, find out the backstory on, uh, you know, this young player who you can't speak with directly. And I think that. You know, Pedro, with the stories that he would tell me about, uh, you know, players whose first language was Spanish, I just got so much perspective and so much better context, and that was important. And I, as I say, I, I'm sad for players who are not going to benefit from that because I think that's been really important. Um, you know, with with Pedro, you know, being at the forefront of, of bearing that out, Marley Rivera bearing it out, you know, a guy like James Wagner with the New York Times who's bilingual bearing it out. That's an important part of the coverage now. You know, he's sort of an American success story with his family coming over from Cuba. And then when baseball went back to play in Cuba, he helped to lead that coverage. Can you talk about that opportunity that he had and how much that meant to him? Uh, It just that coverage still sticks with me. Absolutely. Uh, and I was not in Cuba when that happened. I've never been to Cuba, but I remember having Pedro on the podcast that I do during that time, and he talked about how meaningful that was. Uh, that was. His, his mom was, you know, at the end of her pregnancy with him when his family left Cuba, 
Uh, and so, you know, for him to go back there repeatedly in assignments for ESPN, it was meaningful. And at one point, um, you know, there was a great Sports Center piece done when he was there where he could scatter some ashes from his father and from his brother um, and be able to honor their wishes that, uh, you know, that, that, to do that. Um, you know, Eduardo Perez, I remember telling me about how moved Pedro was to, you know, to have that opportunity. Um, and, and, you know, whenever Pedro would refer to himself, he'd always talk about, you know, crazy Cuban or something like that. He'd make fun of himself. That was always an important part of his heritage. Well, look, I mean, there's no way we can do full justice to the life that he lived, but we wanted to make sure that we brought it up and, and had somebody on who could really speak to it. Buster, we can't thank you enough for the time. Obviously, our condolences to you and everybody uh, associated with him. Um, we wish you the best of luck with everything. Hopefully, we get to talk to you another day about uh, some other more fun topics. Absolutely, and I appreciate you guys talking about Pedro. Uh, thank you so much. You take care of yourself. Thank you. Jeff, it was, uh, I mean, we had our own experiences with Pedro, you reminded me that we met him in Trenton. I forgot that's where we met him because I remember the time we got to spend with him in Clearwater when we went to cover spring training two years ago and we sat right outside the backfields at the table. We did an interview for the show and then we sat and talked. And I thought the cool thing was he wanted to talk more about his son and how he all was his kids. in the minor league, yeah, all of his kids, but like you and him kind of bonded a little bit over the idea of like coaching your kids and seeing them succeed. And to me, that was cool. I was just becoming a father. I, I had one little one. I didn't have a second. And to watch two dads dote over their kids like that when we were there in the middle of baseball was just the coolest thing to me. Yeah. I mean, to me, the first thing that I noticed about him is we saw him at a double A baseball game and we're sitting there going, why is one of ESPN's, you know, the faces of baseball for ESPN out here covering, you know, double A baseball and not, not in a way, you know, we've seen guys who sit there and, you know, they think they're too big for the experience. And, and just like you see athletes that are like that. And that wasn't him. It, he, he covered it. He was there for his story. He covered it with passion and he and he would help anybody that wanted. He was talking to other young reporters, um, and then he was just so easy to speak to, uh, because as you said, it was easy to talk to him to relate to him. He he yes, he cared about baseball. He loves baseball, but he, he loved his family more. And one of his kids is is a minor league pitcher. His name is Rio Gomez in the in the Boston Red Sox system, and and he could tell us. You know, he, he was talking like a dad. He was telling stories about his kid when he was 13, 14 years old, which I could relate to as somebody who coached my son through, you know, travel baseball and all of that stuff. And, and he knew so many people just through that experience. He was used to, I believe Scott Kingery was part of that. He was, he was the first person who told us about Scott Kingery playing center field. Yeah. And he knew that because of the high school days when he was playing with Rio and that right. was the, the conversations that we were having with him. It was amazing. Yeah. And, and, and then, and then, you know, I would, we would text back and forth, just baseball stuff or how Rio was doing or how his kids were doing. And he would ask, and, and I, I said to you before the show, you know, I don't, I don't keep my text messages for long periods of time. And, and it's, these are, this is one of those times I sit there and I kind of regret that I don't have that because you know, over the holidays, it's like, you know, how, how are your kids? How are you doing? Can't, you know, can you wait to get back to baseball and there hopefully no pandemic and, 
and stuff like that. And, and you're right. When, when we were, I was texting with him, he was going to come on our show a couple of weeks before spring training. And then he said he was going to be down there and he's like, Hey, why don't, why don't I just join you for the show? I don't know. Remember. And, and he just, we just sat there and talked baseball yeah. spring training with the Phillies. And then, and then the second we were done, it was like, I believe he was talking to my son at one point and then just talking about his kids. And it, he's one of those guys that really is larger than life as far as covering baseball, but he was larger than life in a way that his voice didn't carry. He wasn't loud. He didn't need to be part of the story. What did I put in the text message to you when I sent the link? This is awful and not a story I want to send you. Like it, yeah, for, it, for it somebody- broke my heart to hear it because you know he was he's one of those guys. I, I kept going. I hope we can go down to spring training this year and cover it. And part of the reason I wanted to go was because you know Pedro would be there. And we we put out on our account the picture of us with him at the table interviewing him. We'll we'll throw that out there again. But uh, our little tribute to a, a very good man. Uh, I recommend you look at some of the tributes that other people have out there about him. Uh, Jeff, why don't we leave this here for a sec? Let's quit a quick break and then we'll come back and keep talking about everything. We'll be back in a sec. Operating engineers are the men and women that move mountains. And the Engineers Labor Employer Cooperative, ELEC, puts them to work. They create opportunities for the men, women, and union signatory contractors of Local 825, repaving our roads, keeping our homes bright and warm, and even building our favorite team stadium. We understand infrastructure. That's why ELEC and Local 825 are ready to get to work. Welcome back to The Heart of Sports with Jason Springer and Jeff Cohen. Jeff, we'll get to Larry Olmstead in a few minutes. We'll talk about his book and uh, whether being a fan makes you happier. Uh, I would say your favorite word, fandom. Watching some of the uh, Philadelphia sports teams doesn't always make me happier. <laughs> but you hey, know, what happened? I thought I thought last time we were on, I thought Carson Wentz was going to be traded in days. What happened? He's still oh, here. Weekend, he was going to be traded in moments. There were reports. Tariq who, Cohen. Who do you that. think wants him? I still think it's the Bears or the Colts. I think everything else is speculation. I think that Howie wants more. And he's not necessarily going to get it. it. You know, if you look at apparently the offer, according to Jaworski, is two second rounders from uh, Indianapolis right now. Uh, I, I, look, <laughs> they've backed themselves into Think about it. that. Two yeah. second rounders. For the guy that you extended. For, for your franchise quarterback. Yeah. I, I mean, it is malpractice the way that this whole thing has been handled. It just, and, and yet how he's still here. He's still running the show. He will be the last man standing. I, I assume it's, you agree with me now that he gets traded, right? Like you can't bring him back after all of this. Sure you can. And by the way, so last you, you okay. can bring him back. Why can you not? Real fast. Last week I talked to you. I said as a communications person, I find it shocking he hasn't talked because he's letting the narrative be dictated. Right. I thought about it after the show. What about if the Eagles asked him not to talk? What if they don't want him out there talking? No. You think that's why he's no. not, or is he no. just not interested? No. When have you ever known Carson Wentz to be the great communicator? Well, when have you ever heard that he's the great communicator in the locker room or in the huddle or anywhere? But if they, if he wants out and they have an agreement that they're going to try to get him out and said, just shut your mouth until you're gone. No, no, no. I, I don't, I don't, I don't think that does it. And quite frankly, it's turning out that the longer he doesn't talk, the worse Howie Roseman's looking. Well, the worse they all look. 
none of them come out looking good here. Especially they- when stories leak out that Sirianni went to a meeting and said that he wanted to keep him. It's- so, it's- so what is going on? Like, if you're the, if you take a job as the head coach and you know you have these two quarterbacks, shouldn't it be the head coach who's then deciding, hey, this is the guy that I want? Well, if this story is true, here. why isn't it as simple as I think that I can get this guy back to where he was his first year? Sirianni said in the press conference, how he will control the 53-man roster, I will control the game day roster. I would assume that Carson Wentz is one of those 53 players and how could, he's in charge of it. Could, could that statement be any further from the Bill Parcells, if I'm making I'm the meal, my I want to pick. But that's the thing. <laughs> the Eagles didn't want somebody to pick their groceries. They don't even want somebody to offer recommendations on what to cook for dinner. Well, but see, that's the problem. You want to, if you want to bring in a, a new chef and and you want to set what the menu oh, is, don't now, you want, don't you at least want the chef to have some passion for what he's going to be cooking? It'd be a preference. Sirianni seems to be like, all right, whatever you give me, I'll just work with it. If well, I can't make it, I'll make it into a stew. I mean, like, what? Seriously, what's what? That's that's. I got no more cooking references. What? <laughs> what? What exactly is the point here of bringing in a guy, he gives his opinion and says, this is the guy I want as my quarterback. And isn't he supposed to be an offensive guy too? So exactly what's the point here? And, and, and all you're going to get in return for him is two second rounders maybe. And by the way, how much of that salary are you still going to have to pay? A, a lot. Uh, yeah. You'll be out. So, so what's, so what's the point? Well, I'll leave that there for now. We don't have Larry yet, so I do want to give you a chance before Larry comes on. Since oh. we're talking about NFL coaching, yeah. I want to give you a chance to talk about your best friend, Urban Meyer, and the staff <laughs> that he is assembling down in Jacksonville. Uh, if you remember, <laughs> I said when, we, when he got hired on air, I believe I said this, that apparently the Jacksonville's motto is not going to be character matters. And you don't believe that his hires have reflected. We that. don't have to go through all the things that Urban Meyer has been involved in or the stuff that, that he has not shown to be a leader. I have look as a Michigan fan, I can tell you he can beat the pants off anybody as a coach, but being a coach as we've had with Gary Waters is more than just wins and losses. Not for Urban, it doesn't seem like. What, what, the way that he leads and the things that he lets go is, is sad. And now you have brought, is he the only, is the guy they brought in with all the problems he had, is he the only strength and conditioning guy you can get? This is a strength and conditioning coach who was let go of Iowa after 23 years, apparently making racist remarks, other things has found a home because Urban says he knows him and he's reviewed it. Jeff, that makes you feel much better, right? He's the last person should, that should be vetting anybody's character. We'll get back to that in a little bit. Uh, let's talk about a new book coming out, Jeff. It is great to be joined by award-winning journalist Larry Olmstead. That uh, one? That is the book. You're, you're putting it up onto the screen. The author of Fans, How Watching Sports Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Understanding, available March 2nd. Larry, how are you doing today? Thanks for the time. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. 
Uh, we were excited. Jeff sent this over to me, and um, this is something that Jeff and I talk about a lot, the impact of sports on society and community and how people feel about their teams and everything around it. So I got to ask you from the start, where did the idea come from and how long did it take to put together? Well, so actually I went, this is probably like somewhere in the neighborhood of seven years ago, maybe even a little bit longer. I went to the last game of the season at uh, Fenway Park, Yankees-Red Sox. Turned out to be a meaningless game, but like Fenway, it was, you know, a, a good day. And um, I saw these parents with kids, and they had custom-made T-shirts with obscenities on them on their little kids. And I, I, it kind of ruined my game vibe, and I was thinking, you know, what's wrong with these people? What is it about sports that makes fans so crazy? So that's kind of like the way I approached it, and I started to do the research trying to find out, you know, what was wrong with us as fans. And I very quickly realized that the reason that they struck me so so uh, importantly was because they're the outlier. They're not most fans. They're the dramatic exception. But I think that's what a lot of people think of when they think of, you know, crazed fans. I discovered very quickly in my research – that fandom was a good thing, a positive thing, made most people better people. And uh, I started in depth on this about five years ago. You know, one of the things that I learned from your book is it's not that simple. It's not as simple as fans are good, fans are bad. I mean, like one of the things that you talk about in the book is, is that being a fan actually helps. It lessens discrimination. It increases tolerance. And what do you attribute that to? Well, what a lot of psychologists who study fandom have found is that, you know, sports fandom is very important, akin to religion and sort of the pantheon of beliefs. And um, people who are serious fans internalize their relationship to the team where the team literally becomes part of them. So then if you have an instance like with the Brooklyn Dodgers bringing Jackie Robinson on board and say you don't agree with that decision, your choice is to stop liking the Brooklyn Dodgers, which are part of you, or accept it and retain the Brooklyn Dodgers. And for most people, that, that relationship to their team is so important that it, it, it supersedes other behold, which can lead to a lot of self-improvement. And it's not an immediate thing where, oh, yeah, I love the team, so I'm no longer racist, but, you know, it, it, it's a path to change. Yeah, but and, and, but at the same time, the flip side of that coin is is you also talk about the us versus them mentality and how being part of a tribe, while it may be good, also there's a downside to it. And so what did you learn about the us versus them mentality? And really, what can we do about that? Well, I mean, yeah, that's the one thing that kind of the big negative that kept standing out for me is when, you know, you talk any kind of a rivalry um, – you know, I mentioned like Yankees, Red Sox, right? I live in New England. So people will say, oh, I hate the Yankees. I hate Yankee fans. And they don't know them. You know, to me, to just be able to say, oh, I hate people because they like a team is not a good thing. So that, that, that tribalism you mentioned, that's what always bothered me. And the good news on that front is that that is changing very quickly, changing because of fantasy sports, which are you know, a relatively new invention, but, you know, growing super fast. Uh, I think at the time I sent the book to press, there's about 60 million people in the U.S. and Canada participating regularly, and it keeps growing. And that has, you know, people have to draft people from the teams that they don't like if they want to do well. And the NFL Red Zone Network is a result of that. And it makes people just more supportive of players on other teams, which in turn reduces that tribal mentality. You know, the book talks about how sports acts as a cultural currency, a source of healing, and 
Now, I remember after September 11th when they started playing those games again. In the book, you go through uh, the Las Vegas season after the 2017 uh, shooting and how that helped the community. Can you talk about how sports can serve as an opportunity for healing? Absolutely. I mean, I cover a lot of ground in the book, which is probably my single personal favorite part of, of the book and what I learned. And, it's, you know, it's, it's been going on forever. I mean, uh, the Greeks, you know, used to use the Olympics to stop a never-ending cycle of city-state war, you know, a, a little little window of peace in, in ongoing war. And ever since then, I, you know, I mentioned that, you know, FDR urged baseball not to stop playing after Pearl Harbor so that the people would have something to distract them from, from the terror. And we saw after 9-11, after the Boston Marathon bombing, but but the Las Vegas example in particular really resonates to me because I spent a lot of time in Las Vegas over the years as a journalist, and I went out there and I interviewed people who had been shot, who had been shot at, and over and over to hear them tell me how the Golden Knights basically, you know, saved them, their psyche. I talked to one woman who was, you know, so traumatized after the shooting that she was a, wouldn't leave her house. And then friends, you know, the Golden Knights, it was their debut season, they only started playing about 10 days after the massacre. You know, the games were immediately popular and people kept inviting her. And finally she went and it was the first time she left her house and not only left her house, but went into a crowded situation on the strip, just very similar to what, you know, had caused her trauma and fell so in love had never been to a hockey game that she went to 50 more that season. And she was, you know, tearing when she told me this and, and you can't overlook that impact. Well, not only that, the, the other impact that you talk about in the book, which is, is kind of central to kind of what we do here, is we talk about how athletes and teams uh, go out in the community and do good work. And you talk in your book about how uh, sports-related wishes are the second most requested make-a-wish ask from patients. And that's 74% of parents saying that the granting of a wish marked a turning point in their child's response to treatment. What did you learn about athletes as, as you research this book and about how they, they operate off the court and off the field? Yeah, I mean, these days, you know, it's changed a lot with the advent of social media, but pretty much every prominent athlete has a charity or a cause these days. Um, it's almost, I, I mean, I talked to some uh, NFL teams and they said they signing, you know, rookies in the first round who like one of the first things they do is say, you know, hey, I need help setting up a charity. And um I think that's great because they really do. I mean, sports fans have been uh, demonstrated to be more charitable and more volunteerism. So it's a really powerful platform. Um, I cite the example of J.J. Watt just shattering uh, money record, uh, uh, raising records after the hurricane that hit Texas. And, um, you know, I talked to the, doc the, the, the doctors involved in the Make-A-Wish program and, and describing how much impact, you know, meeting their favorite athletes has on these kids. So it's a really powerful platform that the athletes have. And I think more and more they're using it really well. I mean, and, and, and people don't, don't always appreciate, you know, when you watch the games and they say, you know, every time a home run is hit, we're going to give $100 to this charity or the teams host 5Ks or food banks or, you know, Denver, I talked to the Denver Broncos, they do an annual blood drive at their stadium and it's the single biggest blood donation event in Colorado every year and it's been going on for like 30 years and that's not, you know, insignificant. You know, you also talk about the awareness that athletes can raise to civil rights issues. We've seen 
walkouts in the NBA and WNBA with the protests this summer. We, we obviously saw Colin Kaepernick with the kneeling and the conversation that's that's gone on past that. Also, the then advertising side of Nike's merchandise selling out. Can you talk about athletes and the platform there and, and how that impacts fandom? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think for a long time, a lot of fans still feel this way, where you get these comments that politics and sports shouldn't mix which to me is a little bit ridiculous because, you know, Hollywood actors and musicians and other people in the public eye have a long track record of activism. But for some reason, you know, some fans have always thought it shouldn't spill over into sports, but it always has. It had with Tommy Smith and John Carlos, the Mexico City Olympics and Muhammad Ali. And there's always been individual social activists um, as athletes. But I think the big change now, I mean, this has really been like a watershed couple of years since Colin Kaepernick. Two things. One is is the social media. Just it, it it gets the message faster, further. You know, people like LeBron James have a, you know amazing amounts of followers. But secondly, what we've seen now that really has changed the paradigm is the teams and the leagues themselves getting involved. I mean, they always kind of buried their heads in the sand, and now you have the on uniform, on field messaging. The NFL, I think, it's two hundred and fifty million dollars. To you know, fight systemic racism, and it, across all you know, all of these sports, you had Major League Baseball walking out, game cancellations. Um, you know, I think the the players have just become much more aware of the impact they can have, and you know, I think ultimately, as it played out during the civil rights era and it played out during the women's rights era, this is going to be a chance for sports fans to you know move the needle on our democratic society. Larry, again, the book is called Fans, How Watching Sports Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Understanding. Larry, of all the things that you learned in researching and writing this book, what's the biggest takeaway for you? I mean, I was, I was uh, really put off by the stereotype sports fans get in uh, TV and movies. I did a pretty deep dive analysis, and it's universally negative. <laughs> and you know it, that's not the case. Um, you know, sports fans are 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 you and me and your next door neighbor. They're most people in America. And you know, I personally am not that big a sports fan. You know, I love the NFL. I follow baseball, but I don't really follow college sports. But it's made me a fan of fans. And, and I believe, you know, just the, the idea that, you know, being a sports fan is something you can be proud of is probably the biggest change for me. Got to encourage everyone to get the book and give it a read fans, how watching sports makes us happier, healthier, and more understanding out March 2nd. Larry, thanks for giving us a few minutes. Uh, best of luck with everything with the book. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Jeff, I, I, I love, stories about this when you sent it to me you knew that i was going to be down for it immediately yeah, you, yeah, you were pretty you were pretty excited anything that has the word fandom in it you you get all excited about well because you know the other thing they they talk i mean <clears throat> i've talked about it on the show with you for me sports was family mm -hmm. like, that was how my I, I bonded with my dad and my brother and like that was my thing and so fandom to me became life and so you know, I, I laughed in the book. It says that people have a higher GPA when they're watching games. My mom would like to argue with him on that point based on paying for my college years while I spent more time watching games, potentially putting a dollar or two on them and well, not he, opening my books. He, he, he didn't say it was 100% true. So wow. you appear to be the, the uh, you know, the opposite of what he was trying to prove. 
So I'm just able to break stereotypes like that, but not good book. Exactly. Yeah. Well, well, he also said he liked fans and that may be another way that he, you broke stereotype. <laughs> hasn't really met me yet, Jeff. So we can work on that. So We've, we got, we got a minute left. We could talk about all the flyers games. Oh no, we can't. Cause there aren't any flyers games canceled and that's concerning. Maybe we'll talk a little more hockey next week. I did want to make you feel all warm and fuzzy, Jeff, the truck left for spring training this week. Oh, it's there. It's there now. It's there. They start Tuesday. Pitchers so, and catchers report next week. Did you see the list of everything that's on the truck? Yeah, we go through this every year. I know. I always enjoy it. It's the same stuff. It might even be the same baseballs from last year. Who knows? Although I, there, there is a, a rumor that the baseball may be uh, tweaked a little bit this year. Yeah, they're so, going to so we'll see it in a little bit. They're, they're definitely uh, going to deaden the ball a little bit, it sounds like. I guess uh, there were home run issues in the past. I thought baseball said there was nothing wrong. There were? What are they talking about? I don't know. And, and we have Didi, who just signed his two-year deal. So Scott Kingery's back to, to playing musical positions, I guess. And I, that's what it seems like. And looks like they're going to sign potentially Brad Miller to a small deal. You know, we got to talk about this more next week. But yes or no, do you want Odubel Herrera at spring training or not? No, I don't. Uh, I'm with you on that. But I I don't know whether they have the ability not to bring him. Uh, I don't know. Sure they do. You don't don't have to let someone play. I I know, but with the union, I'm sure the union would go to bat for him on that at this point. But no, I don't. I don't. I'm not. See, I'm not on the fence about something, Jeff. I gave (laughs) you a great answer. So, So from now on, I'll ask you the big question, like right before we're done, because that appears to put the pressure on you to actually get off the fence to come through i also want to uh-huh. talk for next week about what they're doing with the pitching jeff do you think the phillies are doing enough we only got like 40 seconds left bought in brought in like eight veteran arms hoping that they have reclamation <laughs> hoping that two of them work out they're, i mean that's really all you can do at this point what what are you going to do if you've looked at the prospect list the problem is there's only one out of the top 100 that's a philly and it's spencer howard That is concerning. Going to be the last word. Thanks so much for joining us this week. Make sure to join us next Friday night to help you start your weekend in style. Have a great one, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.